sometimes when I do the transition to the sermon, it's like, that just wrecks the whole mood, you know? Darn it. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that when our knees hit the ground and we come to you in prayer, we come to a Father who loves us, who welcomes us, who has committed to move toward us to meet our needs. So help us as we open your scriptures today to trust in that God. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So would you stand, greet one another, and answer this question. What is a saboteur? Okay. 1944, toward the end of World War II, Hitler realized he was losing the war. And so he tried one last desperate attempt to turn the tide of the war. He sent his soldiers through the Ardennes forest, which was a forest that the Allies believed was impenetrable. And the Ardennes forest straddled Belgium, France, and Luxembourg. And they weren't watching for anything to happen in that area. And so he sent his armies through what became known as the Battle of the Bulge because they were able to force their way into the territory of the Allies. It was this action caused the greatest number of American casualties in any other action during World War II. And one of the things he did was he not only sent his armies in in a full frontal attack against the Allies, he also sent in saboteurs. The saboteurs were German soldiers who were dressed in American uniforms, carrying American guns, driving American vehicles. And they went in among the American troops And as they came in, they blew up ammunition dumps and fuel dumps. They blew up bridges and stuff like that, all the time behaving as if they're Americans. One of the primary ways they disrupted things was that they interrupted all the communications so that they would send wrong radio signals so that the forces who were fighting would constantly get misleading messages over the air. The other thing they did, too, is wherever they found road signs, they would turn them around so that they would point in the wrong direction. So that as columns were trying to move toward the front, they'd actually end up going to the back or in other directions at all. So they completely disrupted the, the communication systems that were functioning at the time. And that's what, part of what gave the German armies that ability to keep moving and to, to penetrate as far as they went. And it was the work of those saboteurs that undermined the trust that the soldiers had in one another undermined the trust that they had in the communications, the trust that they had in in road signs, so that they completely undermined them. It's an interesting thing that the word devil, one of the translations of the word devil could be saboteur. And what the devil does in your life and mine is he wants to sabotage God's communication with us. He wants us to misunderstand what God has said And to believe things that God has never said. For example, God helps those who help themselves. Where's that in the Bible? You'll never find it. Okay? Everything happens for a reason. No, it doesn't. That's not in the Bible at all. Okay? There's there's all these kind of things. So one of the things that the saboteur wants to do is to undermine your trust in God. Your trust in the goodness of God, your trust in the power of God, your trust that God will fulfill what he has promised. And we know that because he did it with Adam and Eve in the garden. He came in and he undermined Eve's trust in God by misquoting what God had said. 
he did the same thing to Jesus, of all people. He came to Jesus and he misquoted what God had said in order to get Jesus not to trust God the Father. In fact, what he tried to do is to get Jesus to presume upon God. Now, let me just define what presume means. To presume God means to expect or even demand that he do something he has never promised. To presume upon God, then, is to expect or even demand that he do something that he has never promised, or to demand that he fulfill a promise he's made in a way that meets our objectives, that meets our agenda, that meets our calendar. And so what he wants us to do is to get us to move to another place. God wants us to have faith in him. What the devil wants us to do is to paint God into a corner. And when God doesn't come out of that corner the way we expect him to come out of that corner, he gets to undermine our trust in God. And that's exactly what he did with Jesus in his temptation as Jesus began his ministry. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, we're told that God, Matthew chapter 3, God had sent his spirit upon Jesus at his baptism. And the spirit of God coming upon Jesus was an affirmation that he and an empowerment that he represented God. Then God the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son, and declared his his allegiance to Jesus. Then immediately the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now notice this. It was God who sent him there to be tested by the devil. And one of the reasons God sent him there was in order for him to demonstrate his allegiance to God the Father. And that's part of what we'll show on today. Another reason he went there was to prove his sinlessness. And another reason he went there was to teach us how we should counter the temptation when Satan comes our way. So if you want to go to sleep, just listen one more sentence. Okay? (laughs) Satan will tempt you to not trust God the Father. He will tempt you. One way he will do is getting you to presume that God should do what you're telling God to do. And when he doesn't, he will undermine your trust in God. And the way we counter him is by knowing what God has truly said. To know what the scriptures truly reveal about God. And so we find in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to the second temptation, he tempted Jesus to presume upon God. We read this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now don't be too disturbed that the devil took him there. He was going along because God the Father had put him into this position. He's obeying what God the Father wants by following the Spirit. And the devil then takes him to the the highest point of the temple. One of the highest points was 450 feet above the ground. One side of the temple, the fall, was about 450 feet to the ground. The other side was shorter, but it was still incredibly high. Now, one of the reasons we think the devil took him specifically there is that Malachi had said that when the Messiah came, he would come to the temple. Here it is, Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. It's true. Jesus would come. But they had a myth that they'd made up about it. And again, watch this. God didn't say he would come in the air. God didn't say he would come down from the air and he would alight on the top of the temple. That was a myth that they had developed among the Jewish people. And they believed it. They did. It wasn't in the scripture. They thought it was because based on Malachi. So you see what happens often? That these myths grow up around scripture, around our understanding of God. And we eventually start to believe that this is true. But it wasn't true at all. But the devil takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, knowing that there'll be some people who are expecting that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come down out of the sky 
to the temple. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, okay? Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, okay. The people are expecting that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come down out of the sky, and as he comes down out of the sky, he will just float down to the ground, and he will land because the angels will carry him down. If you are the son of God, the devil says, do that. I mean, this is Hollywood. Ta-da! When you imagine the impressive Jesus comes down out of the sky and he alights in the temple grounds and the people would all believe and follow him from that day onward. No, they wouldn't. People saw him perform miracles and the leaders of the nation saw him perform miracles and they hated him and killed him. There were people who saw him perform miracles and then they wanted more and they wanted more and they wanted more. See, the problem is we always think, oh, God would do miracles. I'd believe in him too. No, you wouldn't. You'd always demand another miracle and then another miracle and then another miracle. If you watch what's happening with movies, you will notice that we are never satiated. Do you remember movies used to show Superman smack a guy and he went down? Now it's not enough. Now he has to destroy an entire city while he fights the guy and smacks the guy down. And then the next movie, they destroy five cities. And then the next city, they destroy it. We, we always want more. And so even if this was true, and Jesus did float down to the ground, the people wouldn't have believed. John tells us, John chapter 12, people saw his miracles, they still didn't believe in him. All right? But Satan's trying to set this up. And he says, come on. Why don't you prove that you're truly the son of God? And throw yourself off the top because God has said, and here he's quoting a psalm. God has said, they will lift you up in the hand so you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, let's take a look what God really said. Psalm 91. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. Okay, now this is a promise in Psalm 91, that those who make the most high the place where we live our lives, that we go to him, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near you. This is a promise to those who are seeking to walk and live with God, that God will protect you. And it's especially true of the Messiah. Okay? Now, you're going, oh, excuse me? I had a car accident. Where was God when that happened? My feeling is at the end of our lives, or when we stand before God, we're going to look back through our history and find that when there were times we were being faithful to God, he did. He did step in. And times that we didn't know that he was going to step in. We were traveling across somewhere in the Midwest, and my wife was driving, and we're coming up on the exit that we needed to take, and she missed the exit. So in my calm, normal, Raymond way, said, you missed the exit. We need to take the next exit and come back. It's not quite how it happened, but still. We didn't have to go far. We turned around and came back. And when we got to the exit, we should have just taken an 18-wheel truck, had just come off the overpass and landed on the section of the highway that we'd have been driving through. And it was just one of those things that's like, oh, good grief. Okay? I think there'll be lots of times in our lives, if we will look back, when God actually did step in, if we were faithful, being faithful to him, when he, when he did fulfill this kind of promise. In a sense, though, it's a proverbial promise. A proverbial promise is a promise that is generally true. Okay? 
Not absolutely. If it was absolutely true, we'd have Christians around us who are hundreds of years old because they're still, you know, I keep trying to throw myself under a bus and the bus misses me. I mean, come on. You know what I mean? So there's a sense in which it's a proverbial promise, but it's still a promise. All right. So Satan's saying, okay, so God said this. Throw yourself down and his angels will capture you. He twisted the scriptures just as he did with Eve, just as he will do with you and me. He's a saboteur. He's a liar, okay? He will twist the scriptures. And what he did is he left out a line, the yellow line. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, God wasn't saying, I will rescue you if you want to jump off the top of temples. If you want to just go ahead and jump out of airplanes without a parachute, I'll catch you. Whatever you want to do, however stupid it may be, I'll catch you. Don't worry about that. No, to guard you in all your ways just means as you go about your life. As you go about your normal life, God said, I will be there to protect you. So Satan, what Satan is doing in the first temptation when he tempted Jesus, Jesus answered him by quoting the book of Deuteronomy and telling him just then, it is, we're told that, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. And so the devil now uses his weapon against him. He says, oh, you want to quote the scripture? The devil says, I can quote scripture too. But notice he twists it. There was a sad story in Dallas. A, a policeman chase, was chasing a, a man. The man had an, a car accident, then got out of his car and was shooting at the cop. And the cop started to shoot back. The man ran out of ammunition. The cop didn't know that. But the cop's gun jammed. And so he took his gun and he threw it at the man. And as it went, went toward the man, it bounced against something and unjammed. And the man picked up the gun and shot the policeman dead with his own gun. That's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to use Jesus' weapon against him. But the thing is, Jesus knew the scriptures. You get the the, the sermon here, you can go back to sleep after this. When Satan attacks us, he's going to twist God's word. He's going to make you presume some things about God that are not true. And the way we protect ourselves is to know the scriptures. Jesus goes back to the book of Deuteronomy and he counters the temptation of Satan by quoting another part of God's word. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, let me tell you what happened at Massa. At Massa, God had led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Remember, he parted the Red Sea and they crossed on dry land. And after they got to the other side, he caused the water to collapse and to kill the armies of Pharaoh who were chasing after him. After you've seen a miracle like that, aren't you going to live the rest of your life going, I trust God? No matter what happens, God's going to take care of me. I know, I saw what happened at the Red Sea. God's going to take care of me. I'm perfectly happy. But then they rebelled against God and God God made them wander in the wilderness. And as they wandered in the wilderness, they came to a place where there was no water. And so they said, it's okay. God's going to take care of us. He's led us to this place. God's going to provide water. It's okay, Moses. We're relaxed. Not at all. They began to scream and fuss and and lose their temper at Moses. (laughs) It's kind of funny. You've got to read this. When they camped at Rephidim, there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water and they grumbled against Moses. 
They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled quarreled there and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That's what Jesus is quoting. And he's saying to the devil at this point in time, We're not supposed to test God, okay? You're not supposed to paint God into a corner and expect God that he's going to come out of that corner. Now, sometimes we paint him in a corner with something he has promised and we want him to answer it now and we want it our way and we want the answer perfectly when we tell him. God is not a genie. Okay? We all think that he's, he lives in this little genie bottle and we can wipe it and he pops out and he says, Oh, Raymond, my master, what is it that you wish? And I give him my shopping list, and he says, yes, sir. Oh, I will obey you. And if he doesn't, I go, God's no good. There is no God. God hates me. God doesn't love me. God's got no power. God can... Do you see what happens to us? We have expectations of God that presume that God is going to do something he either has not promised, or we presume that he better do it the way we demand that he do it. And so Jesus quotes, answers him by quoting that. Now... You say, but Raymond, I don't understand. Aren't we supposed to exercise faith? Yes. We're commanded to exercise faith, but not presumption. Book of Hebrews chapter 11 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God loves it when we trust him. God wants us to trust his love, to trust him completely. In fact, faith is the one thing that he asks of us. Trust me. But trust me. Don't trust a caricature of me. I'm sure you've heard people say, my God wouldn't do that. Well, do they realize when you say my God wouldn't do that, you've just invented a God in your own image? Isn't that weird? That you, my God wouldn't do that. How do you know about this God? Well, he's the God I know. Where did you know about? Well, he's the God I, I my God wouldn't do that. That's a God you've invented of your own. And God will not be held to that kind of of demand the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is we call it the hall of fame of heroes of the faith stories of people who through faith in God saw incredible miracles I just want to read some of them to you he says and what shall I say I do not have time to tell you about Gideon Barak Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms administered justice and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. That people by faith saw those incredible miracles. Okay? That's what God wants us to be able to do, to trust him. And he will step in and he will change history. He will change the world in response to our prayer, in response to our faith. Now, if I were a faith preacher today, I'd stop reading at this point. And I'd get a southern accent, and I'd say, Brothers, 
Do you see what God wants of you? If you have faith, you'll be able to move a mountain. So if you send me $500, I will give you a handkerchief that will give you faith. You know, that kind of stupidity. Actually, I was watching one of those preachers on TV one night, and I thought I'd actually tune into Saturday Night Live, and I was watching a caricature <laughs> of a faith prosperity preacher. And this guy was going on and on, and after a while I realized... This is not Saturday Night Live. This man is real. And people believe him. And they bought him an airplane, which is parked right here at Palomar, uh, at, at, the, at the airport, right down the road here. People bought him an airplane because of the faith. And he's preaching this stuff. And I'm going, that's not true. That if you have faith, you will be healthy and wealthy like me. And you'll also have an airplane and a nice big house and a pool in the garden. And you know, you, you have all of that. Okay, watch what happens. Women received back their dead, raised to life again because of faith. There were others who were tortured. What? What? That's not in the Bible, is it? Yeah, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Well, it's because they didn't have faith. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes on the ground because they didn't have faith. If they had faith, they wouldn't have gone through all of this suffering. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In other words... If you have faith, God's going to come through and fulfill promises. But if you have faith, sometimes God's plan is for you to suffer for the sake of his kingdom. There's heaven coming, but this isn't heaven. And there's reward coming, but many of our rewards wait for us in the world to come. They don't come to us immediately and now. But you see what happens when we have misconceptions. We're expecting that if I'm faithful and if I'm believing in Jesus, I shouldn't have trouble in my life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. In other words, it's a false thing to assume that because there are people who did experience wonderful things in faith that we all should as well. That's not what God is committed to do. To presume upon God is to expect or even demand that he do something he's never promised. And so that's one reason why we need to know the scriptures. We need to know what God has said in the scriptures. And some of you, bless you, are doing this. I'd ask you to start reading the gospels. Just read the gospels. And what's cool is some of you are telling me that. One of the women said to me, you know, what's happening is I'm getting to know Jesus. And it's changing my life. Like, ah, yeah, that's, good. that's what God said. So I encourage you, go to the gospels. Just start to read the Gospels and just read them with the de- desire, Jesus, I want to know you. And then later, out into the Word of God so that the Word of God becomes part of your thinking and God can speak to us as well. Another way to presume God is to expect Him to answer our prayers on our schedule or in a specific manner that we want them answered. And just realize that when God hears our prayers, He answers them as a perfect Father would do. And what we're called to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus and to follow him. 
just, I usually don't tell success stories about my own life, but this is not a success story about Raymond. When I was in seminary, uh, but we, it was a four-year seminary, between our second and third year, my wife had a terrible accident and she had to have back surgery. Now, I was working two jobs. She was working full-time in order for us to be able to afford to go to seminary. But she had to have surgery during that month, so she couldn't work any longer. And the, the operation was going to cost us a lot. My, the, my insurance covered 80%. We had to cover the 20% of what was coming up. Plus, at the same time, my car, my beautiful little red VW, swallowed a valve and died of indigestion. <laughs> so, operation coming up. Car has, has now died. And I was in the middle of doing Hebrew and Greek. You know I have trouble with English. Okay? And for me to lose the momentum of learning Hebrew and Greek at that point in time was like, oh, please. But even working two jobs part-time, there was no way I could afford to go back to seminary. So she had the surgery. I came home from the hospital, and the phone was ringing. And I answered the phone, and the woman said, is this Raymond Van Pletzen? I said, yes. She said, I have uh, rather bad news for you. It's like, oh. Okay, more. She said, your, your wife, uh, Melanie, used to work for us at a hospital. And after she left our employment, we forgot to cancel her health insurance. And so unfortunately, you owe us for all of the payments on her health insurance. And I was like, okay, what else? I mean, give me more, you know. But before I hung up, I said, wait, wait, wait. How much do I owe you? Several hundred dollars. Like, oh, Okay. And then I said, wait, wait. Is her health insurance still in effect? She said, yeah. I said, how much does it cover? She said, 80%. I said, oh. I'm sending you the check right away. Keep that health insurance alive. I've got something to find out. So I called my health insurance company. And my health insurance company covered 80% regardless of if anybody else covered 80% of the bill. So if you add up 80 and 80, what do you get? 160%. I checked with both of those companies, and both of them said, yep, this is the way it's going to be. And so after they paid for my wife's surgery, Baylor Hospital sent me the 60% back in cash. I, we paid for her, 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 her surgery. I paid for the first semester coming up in seminary. We fixed my car, and we bought a color TV with a change. Now, does God always do that for us? No. Does he do it sometimes? Yeah. And in fact, I've got lots of other stories like that where God stepped in. I was not presuming upon God. I was going to go to work. I was going to find another job. I was going to continue to work. I didn't presume, but we did pray. And we did ask that God would provide for us so that I could continue with seminary so that I could hang on to what I knew of Hebrew and Greek before it bled away from me. The lesson of this is Jesus teaches us that we need to know God's word and we need to know so that we can trust God to fulfill his word and so that we don't presume upon him either by expecting him to do something he's never promised to do or by expecting him to answer our prayers in the way that we dictate as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our leader who will, who will make sure that our Father cares for us in the way that is appropriate forever, wherever we are in our lives. And thank you that we can have that trust. 
And thank you for giving us your word and your spirit. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I'll ask Brian and his gang to come and we're going to close off by singing an appropriate song. I lift my eyes up. Anybody have a testimony about this? I've got a question. Yeah. I often feel kind of guilty. I'm so blessed. And we have such a wonderful life. Hmm. Um, you know, there's so many people that don't. Yeah. And, you know, they're going to have their heaven. And, and I don't want to say it's heavenly here, but it is pretty darn heavenly. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say about that? Okay. So, there's a difference between true guilt and false guilt. Okay. Would God want you to just sell everything and go and live under a bridge? No, obviously not. He's blessed you. And that's why Paul says, when we pray, bring everything before him with prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thanksgiving for what he's given us is extremely appropriate. And all of us should also be aware that he's given us a lot, not so that we can spend it on ourselves, but so that he can meet our needs and then we can give to others and to share with others. So becoming somebody who's, who's, who's generous is, is part of how we take the, the, the gifts we've got. There's a wonderful story about Letourneau, the man who started Letourneau College, where he decided to give uh, to God 10% of his income. And then it grew to 20% and then 30 By the end of his life, he was giving over 80% of his income and he was still a filthy wealthy man. And he was just basically going, I can't give it away fast enough. And that's just, that doesn't mean we should all do that, but that's just a principle there. So true guilt is, 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 is appropriate when, it, when we need to, but also false guilt. Don't feel that you have to uh, layer yourself with false guilt in the midst of it. Brian, lead us. Okay. Let's stand together.